Hello and welcome to a new series of The Full Fact Podcast, where we tackle dishonesty, untruths and misrepresentation in politics and the media. I'm Alexis Conran and I'll be talking about the biggest stories of the week with independent and impartial fact checkers from The Full Fact team. The inescapable news story of the week is a toss-up between the Queen's speech or that whale getting stuck in the Thames. I am joined by Will Moy, Full Fact CEO. Uh, Will, which do you think we should go for this week? Well, the whale was the story that really grabbed my attention, but it's a bit hard to imagine there's a cover-up of a whale. So I guess the Queen's speech is more <laughs> of our territory. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a fitting place to start. Legislation will be introduced to ensure the integrity of elections, protect freedom of speech, and restore the balance of power between the executive, legislature, and the courts. Now, Will, this caused a little bit of confusion with some commentators from across the Atlantic. Now, one such commentator was Kyle Becker of Becker News and Fox News, who tweeted, breaking, uh, as you tweet with any sort of new piece of information, you just put breaking in front of it and makes it breaking news. Uh, so he says, the Queen of England is triggering the left worldwide with major announcement. But that's not quite how the Queen's speech works, is it? Not really. I mean, it is possible that the existence of a hereditary monarch running the country is triggering for all kinds of people a political views <laughs> worldwide. But this is not what's going on here. We saw quite a number of claims, actually, that heavily implied that the Queen herself personally supports and approves of the policies, including some controversial measures which will require people to provide photo ID if they want to vote in elections, which is very controversial, and similar measures are controversial in other countries. Now, you can understand why people in the United States might be confused about the Queen's speech. They don't have one, and it's peculiar tradition in British democracy that doesn't actually have any real equivalent in the United States. The tradition is that the monarch reads out a statement laying out the legislative agenda of the elected UK government for the coming year. She doesn't write it. She doesn't have any input on uh, the policy of it. And of course, over the years, she's read out the agenda of all kinds of different governments, of all kinds of political persuasions. So if she believed everything she'd said over 50 years on the throne, she'd be either a very, very flexible person or thoroughly confused. Uh, now, look, let's look at uh, some of that content in the speech that that was perhaps, if you look at uh, opinions, left, right and centre, perhaps that was what uh, may have been referred to as uh, a triggering. And this was the announcement, as you mentioned earlier, about voter ID. There's a lot of speculation of, as to what exactly these plans might entail. What do we know so far? Not that much. It was announced during the Queen's speech that the government intends to introduce legislation that will require all UK voters to provide photo ID at polling stations to vote in future elections. And that's a big change. At present, Northern Ireland is the only part of the UK that requires voters to prove their ID at polling stations, and that's specifically related to the history and events in Northern Ireland. These reforms, the government say, are designed as a means of tackling voter fraud, although the evidence for that is pretty limited. And of course, other people point out that adding new barriers to voting can deter people from taking part in democracy and are afraid that it will deter specifically poorer people and ethnic minority voters from taking part in democracy. Okay, so... Do we have any idea how many people this may affect? Can we put a number on it? Well, this is the first realm of claim and counterclaim. 
um, with anything which is both highly technical and highly contentious, people always have their own take on what the impact is going to be. So the Financial Times' Helen Barrett says that 3.5 million voters have no passport or driving license, according to government estimates. Labour MP Nadia Whitten says one in four adults um, don't have photo ID. That's roughly 10 or 11 million people. We actually fact-checked this a couple of years ago, back in 2019, and we found that the Electoral Commission was saying three and a half million people in Great Britain, not including Northern Ireland, which is 7.5% of the electorate, don't have a form of photo ID, which would have been acceptable for the voter ID trial scheme they were running. And that same report found that 11 million people did not have a passport or a driving license specifically. So that 11 million is where Nadia Whittam's claim comes from, the one in four adults don't possess photo ID. But that's specific to passports and driving license. And there are acceptable forms of photo ID which are neither of those, such as travel passes and blue badge disability parking permits. So it does depend what the eventual legislation says about what would count as acceptable ID. We went back and checked the numbers this week, and those are still the most up-to-date figures. Has the government talked at all about cost? For example, passports cost £85, driver's licences £43. If the government is doing uh, this to prevent fraud, then is there is there a possibility, for example, that it might cost nothing? So if you register to vote and you get yourself on, an electoral, on the electoral roll, uh, instead of being sent a polling card, you'll get sent a photo ID that enables you to vote and you can keep that form every election after that. There is a possibility in that if the government wants to make that possible, they can make that possible. They can make free photo ID available. You're absolutely right. It costs money to get a passport or a driving license. You can get a bargain on your passport, by the way. It's £85 by post, but £75.50 if you apply online. Good tip. But whether or not there will be, if you like, a financial barrier to voting from the need to get photo ID depends on whether the government takes any steps to make free photo ID available at the moment. And they've suggested it might be possible, but we haven't seen the bill and we don't know what will actually be offered. Okay, Uh, let's look at some some claims around uh, this introduction of photo ID. A lot of uh, MPs have gone out to bat for the government uh, to say why this is a good idea. Indeed, it's needed. Uh, Conservative MP Gillian Keegan has mentioned, and she's not the only one, I think. She's mentioned that you need uh, photo ID, for example, to collect a parcel from the post office. You know, if I go to collect a, a parcel at the post office now, I need to take my driving license or my passport. The idea being why? Why wouldn't you need to present the same uh, level of identification when casting a vote, which is so essential to democracy? Is she right? No, you don't need photo ID to collect a parcel from the post office. And as you say, several people have been saying this in order to make this uh, requirement photo ID seem comparable to everyday events. But in this case, it's simply not true. You do need some form of ID, but you can take something like a debit card or a utility bill. You don't need photo ID to collect a parcel at the post office. Lastly, and the question that's been asked the most, I guess, is why would the government think it's important enough to put in the Queen's speech that they are going to move towards photo ID when the numbers of fraud are so incredibly low? What is the evidence so far that we have for electoral fraud in the UK? 
Well, it's worth saying that whether or not the numbers are incredibly low is a value judgment. And, you know, for some people, it may be that any example of voter fraud justifies any level of response. But what we can say is about the numbers where people were accused compared to the numbers affected by trials of introducing voter ID to give a sense of the scale on both sides of that balance, if you see what I mean. A few years ago, we fact-checked this, and in elections between 2010 and 2018, and remember we had a few of them, across the whole country, only 181 people were accused of impersonating someone else at a polling station, 181. To put that in context, we can look at numbers taken from pilot for a voter ID scheme, which took place in 2019. In total, less than 1% of voters across the scheme were turned away for failing to provide ID but that represented around 1,968 people being turned away from the polling station. And of those, 740 people did not return to vote. So on that basis, four times as many people did not get to cast their ballot because they didn't have ID or bring ID than the number of people who were accused of impersonating another person in all the elections between 2010 and 2018. Now, this speech wasn't just about voter ID, of course. And one of the things mentioned uh, in the Queen's speech was the online safety bill. Now, given the implications for online misinformation as part of that bill, full fact have had some very strong views on that, Will. Now, we were looking for the government to bring in legislation to tackle bad information online. It's something we've been calling for for many years. The world has changed and some of the safeguards we need to protect democracy, to protect people's health, need to change with it. The bill is necessary and overdue, but Parliament is going to need to scrutinise this very carefully. Online safety has to be balanced with protecting freedom of expression, which is also crucial to having informed public debate. And one of the things we are concerned about is that you can't just hand this all over to a government-appointed regulator like Ofcom without serious consideration and proper oversight from democratically elected MPs. So the government should commit to a misinformation code of practice that sets out publicly and openly what the expectations on internet companies are to tackle misinformation and what good practice looks like. And crucially, it should commit to real-time transparency from internet companies. They're suggesting that internet companies should do an annual report on what kind of problems they're seeing on their platforms. Annual reports in this real-time age we live in mm-hmm. simply won't work. We need timely information to see where people are being misled and potentially harmed and what proportionate responses look like from that. I mean, I know we've, we've been talking about this for, for years, it seems, there are countries that have that have put measures similar like that in place, Germany being one. Has it been successful? Because ultimately you do need the big tech companies and particularly social media companies, for example, to start playing ball. Germany did something very particular to Germany, which was uh, rules on hate speech. And Germany has very strict rules about promoting Nazism, for example, as a result of its history. And they put strict time limits on the internet companies responding to that kind of content and taking it down where they were required to. Those rules are controversial, and they would be even more controversial in countries other than Germany with a different cultural and historical context for the choices they're making. But the internet companies adapted and followed them. If you widen out, though, we've seen all kinds of 
frankly, sinister suggestions around the world of how the law should govern content online. We've seen suggestions that government ministries ought to be able to say what should be taken down or allowed to be seen and shared on the internet. We've seen countries take advantage of the moral panic about fake news to impede people's freedom of expression, ability to protest and debate. It's so important that this bill does not become a power grab by politicians in the UK protecting their own territory and limiting what the rest of us can say about them. So we want to scrutinise it very carefully from a point of view that healthy debate is open debate and that where there are real clear harms done from misleading information, say to people's health, then there are proportionate responses to those. Uh, and, uh, of course, we'll be keeping an eye on that uh, as full fact they're going to be uh, majorly involved in that process. So I'm sure this is a subject we'll return to, Will. Uh, let's uh, let's move on to our media watch. Uh, it's time to put the media in the spotlight. We've got two outlets under scrutiny this week for uh, four different claims. Uh, where should we start, Will? Should we start with the Daily Express? Well, if you're trying to find yourself, let's start with a map. And one appeared in the print version of the Daily Express, giving a very misleading impression of the current state of the pandemic in the UK. It claimed to show the number of new COVID cases in each nation and region of the UK, with several apparently showing zero cases. It said that the east of England, the northwest, the northeast and Northern Ireland were all zero COVID areas. The problem, in a nutshell, is that all of these numbers were wrong. None of these nations or regions reported zero cases of COVID on the 29th of April or on any other recent day, nor were any of the other case totals accurate. It's possible that the numbers were meant to refer to something else, but we haven't been able to work out what. Now, to their credit, we went to the Express, we asked them to correct the record, and they have printed a correction in the newspaper explaining that. That's always good. That always puts a smile to my face. As long as people, if they get it wrong, to put their hand up and go, do you know what, we've got it wrong, thanks for pointing it out will issue a correction, then I'm a happy sausage. Uh, Let's stick with the Daily Express. This is another claim that the UK is getting a new lung cancer drug under an international scheme, thanks to the Brexit deal. Uh, You've looked into this, Will. What have you found? So this particular medication for lung cancer has actually been authorised to be used in the UK since 2016. It was authorised by the EU and therefore, as the UK was a member, authorised in the UK. The only difference is that it's now been newly authorised for a slightly different use in the UK, and that new authorisation has actually not yet been granted in the EU. Some newspapers have been very keen to portray this as a win for Brexit because the UK regulators acting autonomously and moving faster than the EU one in this case, Um, but it's not right to describe it as a new lung cancer drug. Um, It's been going on for quite a few years now. Okay, let's move on to another publication, the Sun newspaper. Two claims from them. The first one is uh, that suicides have doubled since lockdown. Uh, If you've looked into this claim, what have you found? It's possible that the columnist in question, Jay Moore, was referring to a statistic published by the London Ambulance Service in October, which claimed that the number of suicide-related call-outs have doubled over the past year. But actually, I'm relieved to say there is very little evidence for the actual number of suicides has risen by this amount, if at all, over the past year. But that's partly because suspected suicides are subject to an inquest before they're registered. And that tends to take five to six months. So it can take quite a while for trends in suicide rates to become apparent in official registered data. Around half of all the suicides registered in England 
in 2020 actually happened in that year. The other half happened in previous years and took time to work through into the data. And that means that the official data can't yet tell us whether suicides increased after the first lockdown in spring 2020, let alone the winter lockdowns. But the claims at the moment being made of, of suicide suddenly spiking, we do not have good evidence for that being true. Okay, let's move to uh, another claim. Uh, this comes from Sun columnist uh, Trevor Kavanagh. He has claimed that the BBC receives £5 billion of public money. He said our national broadcaster, bolstered by £5 billion of public money, is now identifiably the voice of non-Tory Britain. The bit that we're really interested in is, does the BBC receive £5 billion of public money? Well, yeah, anyone can make up their own minds about the BBC. Uh, But on the spending, we all have to look at the same accounts. Mr. Kavanagh seems to have confused the BBC's total income with the amount of that income that comes from the public. So the BBC's total income is around £5 billion, or if we're being pedantic, £4.943 billion last year. And of that, around £3.5 billion is generated from the licence fee, i.e. from the public. Right. The rest is generated through non-public means. So, for example, more than £1.3 billion of income comes through BBC Studios, one of the commercial arms, which, among other things, generates money by selling BBC content to international distributors. And BBC Studios also owns the UK TV channels, including Gold and Dave, through which it earns advertising revenue. I didn't know that, but it does explain why you get all the BBC repeats on those channels. Exactly that. That's why you find so much of Top Gear on Dave. (laughs) Okay, Will, uh, great to have you on the first podcast of this series. Will Moy, uh, CEO of Full Fact. I hope to be speaking to you soon. Thank you. Now, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and spread the word to your friends to help stop the spread of bad information. Full Fact is independent and impartial, and you can read more about our commitment to neutrality at fullfact.org forward slash about. We'll be back at the same time next Friday morning.